Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for having me with you again to worship the true and living God. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's come before him in prayer. Great God, we thank you that even as we just read in the Psalms, that it is good for us that we have been afflicted. Trials and hardships and difficulties are gifts from you to us to refine us and to grow us and to teach us and to conform us to our great Savior. Oh, how we love your law. It is our meditation during the day. May the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Be glorified in this hour, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Take your Bible, if you would, and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I count it a great privilege and honor to be with you, standing in this pulpit again. I'm thankful for you. I pray for you. I pray for this church congregation and uh, through the years, the Lord has knit our hearts together, I know, in many ways, and thankful that I can be here again to serve you. Romans 8, I'm going to preach verses 28 to 30. I know they're familiar. I know that you know them, maybe even have memorized them. Maybe even this week, something has happened in your life where you have gone back to these verses and the truths that these verses bring out. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. Follow with me as I read God's word. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. I remember in high school, I was going to school one day, Leaving the main road, turning right, at least from my home, into the school property, I quickly pulled over the car because I noticed that there was a friend of mine who had been in a car accident. She was coming from the opposite direction in the left turn lane to turn off of the main highway into the school property, into the parking lot. And as she was turning left, there was a car that had run the red light and plowed into her car head-on, killed her instantly. I remember in those days, weeks, months, with some friends that I had spent time with, again and again and again, coming to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that we know God causes all things to work together for good. Where do you find hope 
in trying times. Where, where was I to find hope in a trying time like that? Where, where do you find hope in the difficult trials of your life that might seem insurmountable? They might seem so difficult you never saw it coming and you don't know what the outcome is going to be. Where do you go? Where do you turn? What do you, what do you put your confidence in when those times come your way? Well, the Bible teaches that our God is good. The Bible teaches over and over and over that our God is good. And maybe one of the most comforting realities in the Christian life is that unshakable foundation. It's an unshakable foundation of the absolute sovereignty of God and the perfect providence of God. The sovereignty of God and the providence of God. What does that mean? That means that God, in his wise and perfect design, he creates all things, he works all things together, he sustains all things, he governs all things, so that every single thing that ever happens will reach their ultimate and decreed end that God has for it, all bringing glory and praise to God. Glory and praise to God. We need to hear that. And we need to know that. Uh, that was helpful for me to hear over and over and over with my friends in high school. Reminding me of Romans 8.28. I was not a believer. The Lord didn't save me until a few years after that when I was in college in California. But that made an impact upon my heart. And my life. Where do these people go for comfort when the worst of situations happen? We believe in a sovereign God and in a providential God. And for that, I want to turn to Romans chapter 8. I was a little bit selfish in picking this text because I had just come from a biblical counseling conference about a week or two ago, and I've just been thinking through this and these verses in my own reading, in my own prayer time. I thought, you know, I want to come back to these, so thank you for allowing me to study this again, and I'm excited to preach it to you today. Romans 8 is like the sparkling jewel of the New Testament. Romans chapter 8 is, is a chapter that might be unparalleled in the entire Bible in such that it highlights the sovereign work, not just of God, but of God the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 highlights the fact that our sovereign spirit saves his people and he sanctifies his people and he secures his people all the way until glory I like to think of it as Romans 8 as the Mount Everest of Christian theology. I've told my kids, and I reminded my wife even earlier today, that the book of Romans might be considered like a, like, like a diamond in the beautiful ring of New Testament theology. Just the Romans is that diamond, but Romans 8 is the sparkle of that diamond when the sunlight hits it. And Romans 8 is just so magnificent and beautiful and it gives stability to our souls. Romans 8 
brings us to Christian theology in a way that there's no other chapter, perhaps, in all of the Bible that takes us higher than the beauty and glory and sovereignty of God than this chapter. Now, we as Reformed Christians, we love Reformed theology. We love biblical theology, sovereignty of God theology, and we're going to get there today. But we also need to have a theology for life, a theology with boots on the ground, a theology for suffering times. We need a sturdy theology when the times of great suffering and hardship come our way. Again, Romans 8, you know verse 28, but can I just remind you of the opening couple of words of Romans 8 verse 28? Do you see it in your Bible? You see, Paul writes and he says, we know. We know. We know. I want to remind you today of what you know, and I want to call you to live by what you know to be true about God. So we need a sturdy theology. We need a God-magnifying theology. We need a solid foundation theology that will carry us through the difficult times of life. And as we think through that and come to these verses in Romans 8, I want to give you three, what, what, I've, what I've called sturdy applications, or maybe affirmations might be a better way to put it. Three sturdy affirmations in these three verses. And I want to give them to you just so you can jot them down because look, if, when trials come your way, when hardships come your way, when you're suffering, when you're sick, when you're confused, when you're feeling hopeless regarding the future, discouragement, depression, whatever, these are three sturdy affirmations you could jot down. And you could put on your refrigerator, you could put on your mirror, you could put by your desk, you could put where you work. You could remind yourself of these. The first is this. God conducts everything for good. He conducts everything for good. Second, I want you to see in verse 29 that God conforms us to Jesus. And then third, we will see in verse 30 that God confirms our salvation. If you know these, and you believe these, and you go back to these, I promise your life will continue to be transformed by the grace of God and the power of God and the ministry of the Spirit who works by and with his word in your life. And one of the cool things that I have noticed, and just it's drawn me to worship in these three verses, is there's one key word in verses 28 to 30. And it's maybe an unexpected word. It's not the word justification. It's not the word foreknowledge or predestination. It's the word God. Or maybe the, the, the word he that refers to God. This section is all about God. So when you leave here today, we ought to have our hearts and our minds consumed with the glory and the bigness of God. The centrality of God in all things. So let, let's look at the first sturdy affirmation that we need. Number one, in your outline, God conducts everything for your Good. In Psalm 119, verse 68, you are good, the psalmist says, and you do good. Now that's a verse that you can take to the bank. 
And that's a verse that we need to know and remember. God is good, character, and he always does good in everything that he performs and does. Verse 28 begins, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. And notice how the verse begins with a confidence. We know. Christian theology begins with a solid knowing of the truth. What does that mean? The Bible teaches we are not those who live by our feelings because our feelings are fickle. And our hearts are deceptive, and they can lead us astray. In fact, Jeremiah says it's desperately sick. Who can understand what's going on in the inner workings of my mind, heart, desires, and thoughts? We don't live by our feelings. We don't live by our experiences. We don't live by a dream or vision or intuition. We live by truth, what we know to be true. We need a a deep, experiential sturdy knowledge of God. In Romans 8, we're sort of parachuting down into the middle of the chapter because Romans 8 has reminded us and taught us about the glory of the Spirit of God. He has given us a spirit of adoption earlier in chapter 8, verse 15. And then we saw in in chapter 8, verse 17, as you read the chapter, that we will be glorified one day. And then verses 19 to 25, you could read it on your own at a later time, that God is going to restore all of creation. Right now there's a groaning. You've been there. But one day God will restore. He will bring a full restoration. And then in verses 26 and 27, the Spirit of God sovereignly intercedes in prayer for you when you're praying, even when the times come that you don't even know how to pray. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to, what, how to put this into words. I don't know what the right thing to do is. Praise God. The Spirit of God prays for us with silent pleadings before the Father. So verse 28 begins with this rock-solid affirmation that we know, we know, we, we trust, we believe, verse 28, that God causes all things to work together for good. And I know the English translations have some different difference in wordings and the subject of the verb. It's not all things work together for good. In the Greek, God is the one who is working all things together for good. God is working everything for good. So let me... Let me get a little bit more specific. What's that trial in your life going on right now? Maybe this year, maybe the last few years, you've been debilitated by it. You've struggled. You've been fearful. You've been anxious. You've, you've, been, you've been worrying. You are unsure of what God is doing and what God is going to bring out of this. That trial, God is working that for good. What about that injury or that illness or that circumstance or that family rift? That comes to your mind, or that health report that you receive, 
or that unforeseen tragedy, or that boss, or that coworker, or that financial struggle, and you think about that, and it's in your mind right now as you're hearing me mention these, you need to hear God is working all these things for good. Every single one of them. Every single one of them. And what this brings us to, and this is where Paul is going to go in giving such a practical verse. It brings us to the character of God. We see if God is actually working all things together for good, we behold the sovereignty of God. My favorite doctrine in all of Christian theology, that God is the king who is ruling and reigning over every event in all of history. God sovereignly reigns. Not only do we behold the sovereignty of God when he works all things for good, but we also behold the omnipotence of God, the omnipotence that God has the power. He's got the power to cause everything to work toward the goal of bringing him glory. You and I can't do that, but God does, the omnipotence of our God. Not only the sovereignty of God and the omnipotence of God, but We need to remember the goodness of God, the goodness of God, that when we behold the goodness of God, we remember that God is able and willing and desires to work all things for good. Why? So that his grace and mercy would be demonstrated toward his creatures whom he loves. God never makes a mistake. God never has to go to plan B. God never has to highlight something and hit the erase button or the delete button and then rewrite it. He doesn't do that. Our God is sovereign. He is omnipotent. He is good. And then fourth, in verse 28, we behold the providence of God. The providence of God. All the Puritans loved the providence, didn't they? They loved writing and preaching on the providence of God. When Isaiah 46.10, God says, I will accomplish all. All my good pleasure in everything that happens in life, God is accomplishing all of his good pleasure. Earlier in Ephesians 1.11, we could turn and read that. God is working all things after the counsel of his will. What a God. What a God. Now, when you and I read verse 28, look look back at your Bible here, verse 28. We know that God, the sovereign omnipotent, the good, the providence-working God. This God is causing all things to work together for good. Now, that, that does not mean that God prevents all trouble. It's not a promise in the Bible that God is going to prevent hardship or give you a comfortable life free of all trials and afflictions. That's, that's not what the verse teaches. Rather, this verse is teaching that God is bringing and God allows everything that becomes to his beloved children, even what we might call the worst of things, God is turning those ultimately into blessings. Blessings. Maybe I could illustrate it with 
a quilt analogy. You take a quilt and you turn that quilt on the underside and all the parts stitched together and you see the seams and you see the parts and you see the fabrics and it's all stitched together. But then when you turn it back to the side that you were intended to look at, you, you see the beautiful whole as it fits together. Well, often in our lives, we're looking at the underside of that quilt. We see the seams, and we see the stitching, and we see how it's fitting together, and we wonder, that doesn't really seem to fit. But God, God in his beautiful plan and design, has this master quilt, as it were, in the analogy of beauty and perfection and love and God-glorifying magnificence. And one of the things that we need to remember, and this is hard for us to hear because we live in such a self-driven and a self-gratifying culture. Everything just kind of seems to be about self. The good that God promises to bring is not ultimately about you. It's, it's not ultimately about you and me. As if, as if God is all about us. No, no, no. The good that God promises to bring is the perfectly good and wise purpose that God has for the entire cosmos, we might say, awaiting your redemption, awaiting your full glorification, not just for your good, but for the magnification of the Son. What is the good? It's not just for me to feel better about myself, or me to be happy, or me to say that I, I feel fulfilled and satisfied. No, the ultimate good is for God to magnify his Son in and through us, even in our suffering. I'm reminded of Genesis chapter 50. Remember the account of the Joseph story and all that went on with that and the end of the book of Genesis, and how, how his brothers came to him, and, and they were asking for his forgiveness. And, and Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Why? To bring about this present result. I'm also reminded of Psalm 84, verse 11, when David said, no good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. Did you hear that? No good thing does God withhold. We think, well, I, I wish God would have done this in my life or given me a different circumstance in my life or different timing or different person or different people. No, no good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. Now, the end of verse 28 tells us that God is causing all things to work together for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. Those are the two stipulations. Are you called? Do you love the Lord? True believers do. And only true believers can. This is a promise to true believers. That you can say to a fellow believer that God is working this for good in your life. You love him. You are called by God. 
according to his purpose. Again, let, let me illustrate it like this. Imagine if in your life you're, you're, you're constantly getting these little pieces of glass. Some are sharp, and they even draw blood. Some are small, some are big, some are smooth, some are a little rough. Some are red, some are white, some are black, some are yellow. Some are kind of a dirty, unattractive brown color, we might say. I like this one, but I don't like that one. I don't like that one. That one cut me. That one hurt me. Why am I getting all of that? But when you get to glory, we see the full masterpiece of this God-ordained stained glass window. Maybe the one behind me might be one example. This stained glass window and the beauty of it. Little did we know what God was doing when we were cut by that one rough, sharp stone. And yet God is working that in the whole for his good and for his glory. So we live by faith, we walk by faith, and yet we live by what we know to be true. And no greater way to illustrate this in Romans 8.28 is there than the cross, the cross of the Lord Jesus. He lived a sinless life, betrayed by evil Judas, and then ruthless, selfish, arrogant sinners rejected him. Unjust Jewish leaders tried him. He was illegally tried. He was condemned. Romans crucified him. They beat him. They tortured him. They hoisted him up on a Roman cross. And the greatest act of injustice ever, the perfect Son of God took the full fury of the wrath of God. The wrath of God, the full punishment of the justice and the anger and the punishment of a holy God in the place of his people. He suffered that in our stead. He suffered that in our place. And Jesus died, and he was buried, and he was put in a tomb. And yet we look at that, and the early disciples looked at that. And, and this, this action that you wonder how in the world could good come out of that. And yet as the apostles preached in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4, this was by the predetermined plan of God. God is working and causing all things to work together for good. When you wonder what God is doing in your life, and you're tempted to fear, and you're tempted to self-pity, and you're tempted to, 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 to be anxious about the future, and all the different ways in which you and I respond to trials and hard times and afflictions, Let's remember our Savior. Remember our Savior that in the greatest act of sin that he received from men and the sin of ours that was imputed to him, we have a great forerunner. God does cause all things to work together for good. So if you're taking notes there, in verse 28, we see that God conducts everything for good. Christian, take heart in that this afternoon. Maybe you needed to hear that because of something that God brought into your life this week. Maybe something tonight or tomorrow may come your way and you need to come back to this verse and be reminded that God 
does, in fact, conduct everything for good. But not only does he conduct everything for good, now look in verse 29. Number two, God conforms you to Jesus. He conforms you to Jesus. So maybe if we're going to get more specific from verse 28, what's the good? God, you're working all things for good. What's the good? I mean, is it just get, get, get the trial out of my life? Now, that's not the good. Well, I just want more money. That's not the good. I want a bigger house, a better car, a more loving family, whatever it might be. No, that's not the ultimate good. What is the good in God's sovereign providence in your life? The answer is verse 29. Look with me. In your Bible, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Why does God do all that? To conform us to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. What is the good? The good is that God predestines his people and he lovingly brings trials and hardships and difficulties into their life for the purpose of conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. Yeah, but I don't like it. It's too hard. It's too difficult. It's too painful. But if God has saved you, and if he's called you, then you and I know from God's word, he's going to sanctify you. And that sanctification is not ultimately about behavioral change. It begins with transformation of heart character on the inside that will then produce outward change. The ultimate good that God promises to bring to his people is not just a better you. It's not just a trial-free life. Oh, you know, I'm so sorry you're going through that. Well, it'll be over soon. God is working it for good. Well, maybe in glory it'll be over soon. But the point of the verse here for God working it for good is even if God presses it harder in your life, he's conforming you in love. Not because he's absent. Not because he's angry with you. Not because he's furious at you because of something that you did today or yesterday. No, but because of his fatherly love. He brings discipline, hardship, trial into your life so that you will emulate the Son. I love the way Sinclair Ferguson puts it. Sinclair Ferguson said, God's ultimate purpose is to make you like Christ. His goal, Ferguson writes, is the complete restoration of the image of God in the child of God. So great a work demands all the resources which God finds throughout the universe, and God ransacks all the possibilities of joys and sorrows in order to reproduce in us the character of Jesus. What a God. What a God of care and precision and love and power and goodness and purpose. Purpose. Now, if you look at verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Why does God do all of this? To conform us to the image of his son. Notice the purpose clause at the end of verse 29. 
Well, why would he do that? So that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. Oh, we could spend hours talking about what the firstborn meant in that culture. It means preeminent. It means prominent. So, so that Jesus would have the prominent position. Not that he had a beginning. That's not the point. It's not, it's not talking about time. It's talking about superiority. So that Jesus would be the preeminent one in all of creation as every one of his blood-bought people emulate him and look like him, not for their praise and exaltation, but for the Son's praise and exaltation. It's like Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. doesn't mean that Jesus was born and was first in God's creation. That's not the point at all. What Paul is saying in Colossians 1 and Revelation 1, John brings us out, verse 5, when Jesus is the firstborn, he's the preeminent one. He is the highly honored one. He is the one deserving all praise and worship because of his supreme, superior status. What's the goal of all of this? In the hard times in life, Romans 8, the context, when you're groaning, when the groans come your way, when the afflictions, boys and girls, I don't know of a more appropriate message from the Bible for you to hear because we live lives of suffering. This is a hard world and it's getting harder. Don't listen to how the world tells you to cope with hardship and suffering. Listen to God's good and wise plan. And his good and wise plan, yes, it is, number one, that God does conduct everything for good. And number two, for a believer, God is conforming you to Jesus. He's conforming you to Jesus. God is on mission, if we could put it like that. God is on mission. And that mission, Christian, is to make you like the Son of God. Oh, to, to represent him, to reflect him, to emulate him. What a God. And it will happen. He'll do it. He'll accomplish it. He'll bring it about. And that's where we come to number three in your outline. If you're taking notes, number one, we see in these verses that God does conduct everything for good. Number two, God conforms you to Jesus. Now, number three, we have to come to verse 30. Now, Paul's going to give a lot of theology, but he gives theology as the foundation upon which we live our lives even when the storms come our way. We need a sturdy theology to carry us through the storms of life. So verse 30, God confirms your salvation. The third sturdy affirmation, God confirms your salvation. Now, I love verse 30, and oh, I mean, we, could, we could spend an eternity trying to plumb the depths of one of these. So here I am in one point of my sermon trying to cover all of these. 
in a summary way. Theologians often call these truths in verse 30 the ordo salutis, the, the order of salvation. Well, I have five kids. I like to simplify it. I call it the golden chain of salvation. The golden chain of salvation. Every link in this divine chain is worked, it's held together, it's certified by God, and they all stand together. Not one of them will ever be broken. Not one of them. And not one could ever fail. They all stand together Nothing, no one, no power, no circumstance, no situation could ever break God's plan that we see right here in verse 30. So look at it with me. So verse 30, we read, let's just begin in verse 29 to get the context. For those whom God foreknew, he predestined. And then verse 30 now, these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What a chain. What promises. What complete action. Complete action. If you look very carefully at the main word in these verses, it's he. He, the repeated word, he, God did the work. It's not us. It's not we. We're not helping. We're not contributing. This is, this is the work of God. It's the action of God. Beginning with number one, verse 29, those whom God foreknew. Foreknowledge. Not just to know something ahead of time. Of course God does. But that's not what the word means. Foreknowledge is not that God just knows something ahead of time. No, no, no. The meaning of foreknowledge in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament as well teaches that this is a marked out love and intimate relationship of care that God has. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I know my sheep. Well, of course he does. He, he knows all the sheep. He knows all the goats. He knows everybody. This is not talking about God's knowledge. This is a special, intimate, relational love that Jesus has with the sheep. Well, here in verse 28 and 29 and 30, we see first here the foreknowledge of God. I like to think of foreknowledge. Maybe a simple way to define it might be foreloved. For loved, those whom he for loved. The prophet Amos says that God knew all the families of the earth, but out of all of them he knew Israel. Well, of course he knows all the peoples of the earth, but he has a particular knowledge and love for the people of Israel. That's what Amos said, of course. Those whom God marked with his love. It all begins there with for love. Second, predestination. We don't argue about predestination. It's biblical. We have to define it biblically. And predestination means that God alone marked out sovereignly for a particular purpose. That's the key of predestination, that God marked something out ahead of time for a purpose. I think of Ephesians 1. We read in verse 4 that God chose us before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. And then verse 5, in love, 
God predestined us, what's the purpose? For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. So foreknowledge is that God set his relational, intimate love upon his people. This happened in eternity past. The second link in this chain is predestination, that God has marked those people out with a particular purpose to adopt them into his family, to conform them to the image of Christ. That's what we read right here in verse 29. He predestined his people. What's the purpose? To be conformed to the image of the Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And now we come to the third link in the chain. Verse 30, and these whom he predestined, he called. What is this calling of God? It is the powerful, the effectual, the summons of God, whereby the dead sinner is drawn to life and brought into union with Jesus Christ. It's all divine initiative. It's all God's doing. He did the work. Foreknown, predestined, called. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians says, consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise. According to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son. What a sweet phrase. You've been called by God into fellowship, into union with the son of God. The fourth link in this great chain. We see it right here again in verse 30. You see it in your Bible. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, and then verse 30. Those whom he called, he justified. Well, by using this word, Paul sort of catapults us into a courtroom setting. It's a legal act by the judge whereby God instantly declares a believing sinner to be righteous through faith in Christ. A justification is not a process. It's not a lifelong process. The Bible teaches that justification is an instantaneous act of God. It happens one, it will never be overturned. It can never be revoked. This is not merely a pronouncement of innocence, just as if I'd never sinned. That's true and good, but that's not enough. Justification is not just that you're innocent before God, but justification now also includes that you are perfectly righteous in the eyes of God through the imputed work of Christ credited to you by faith. Romans 5 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And then... And then verse 30 gives us the fifth and the final link of this chain that Paul brings out right here. And it's, it's foreknowledge and then predestination and then calling and then justification. And now fifth, notice in your Bible, it's the same form as all the other actions. It's not he will justify you, it's, or not that he will glorify you, it's past. You're glorified. Glorified. 
So certain is it to happen in the future that he can say, it's already happened. It's already happened. When a believer arrives in glory and he is perfectly sanctified without sin, without the master, or with the master and with Christ forever, in all the fullness of perfection and love and joy and beauty, he will be glorified. We are not glorified yet. We still battle with sin. We are not glorified now. But one day we shall be. One day we shall be. A question I have, two questions actually. Number one, has this doctrine that Paul has just described right here in verses 29 and 30 in this golden chain, has this become personal to you? It's one thing to know about the theology of salvation. It's quite another thing to say, this has happened to my soul. That I know this God, that he has foreknown me, that he has predestined me, that he has called me, that he has justified me. He's glorified me, like Paul said, the chief of all the sinners. Has that happened to you? Has God done this work in your Soul. Now, why does, Paul, why does Paul do this? The, the, the second question is, why does God do this? I mean, why does he bring out such a solid foundation of theology here? Well, because he's been talking about suffering. Christian, don't forget, we circle back to where we began. In your life... What you need to carry you through the storms of life. Like for me in high school, that unexpected situation of a friend dying. But I was not a believer. I was impacted by others who took this verse and they found comfort from Romans 8.28. Where do you go? Where do you turn? How do you keep going? How do you persevere? How do you have joy while going through the trials? How do you say like the Apostle Paul, though we are sorrowing, we are rejoicing in 2 Corinthians 6? How do you get there? Because you have to have a rock-solid, sturdy theology to carry you through. So this is Reformed theology, yes. This is Christian theology at its best. This is Reformed sovereignty of God, beauty, unparalleled. In the context that when you are weak and you don't know how to pray as you should, and when you're going through the difficulties of life, you can remember that your God is working all things for good. I want to close with a wonderful quote from John Flavel. John Flavel, these Puritans knew this great doctrine. But not only did they just know the doctrine, they knew what it was to suffer well also. John Flavel said, did Christ finish his work for us on the cross? To which we all say, yes. 
Did he finish his work for us? And then Flavel said, then, Christian, you should never doubt, but he will finish his work in us as well. Christian, take comfort in that. Jesus finished the work for you on the cross. Because that is such a complete and a perfect and involved and a good work, he will also complete his work in you as well. Come back to these verses and these affirmations, and the Lord will carry you through the difficulties of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your truth. We thank you that you have given needed, timely, relevant doctrine here in Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. Would you take these words and these verses and would you drive them deep into the hearts of your people that we might be hearers of the word and doers of it, all for the glory and preeminence of Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.